The Apostle Paul, in writing to the churches in Galatia, he rebukes them for embracing and trusting in the, the rituals of Judaism in order to be made right with God, rather than trusting in the, anointing sac- uh, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. And in rebuking them, he writes this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It was before your eyes. Now, none of the, the, the Galatians were at Calvary when the Lord was crucified. And yet, the Apostle Paul says that it was before their eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. You see, when the Holy Spirit speaks through the witness of the apostles, when the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word of God, when He opens the eyes of your heart, it is no less impactful than having seen Jesus live, die, and rise again in person. You see, we are not at a disadvantage relative to the the experience of the first disciples. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, He reflects upon the event that is recorded in our passage in Mark this morning, the transfiguration of Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1, what is is Peter's takeaway from what he witnessed there on the Mount of Transfiguration? It's the trustworthiness of the written word. Having witnessed the transfiguration, Peter says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I pray that this response of faith in the word is your response to seeing Jesus Christ glorified in this passage today. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. You can find it on page 44 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first eight verses aloud. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. They were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Let us pray. Father, as we meditate upon your word this morning, as a lamp shining in a dark place, shine in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The conversation at the beginning of chapter 9 began back in chapter 8 with Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Followed by the more important question, but who do you say 
that I am. And Peter had rightly confessed, you are the Christ. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' preferred self-designation in the Gospels, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he continued, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That is, at the second coming, the the last day, when, as Matthew puts it, he will repay each person according to what he has done. And Jesus said to them then, next verse, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what event is he referring to here? What display of power did some of those standing there see before they died? Clearly, it's not referring to the the, the second coming, which is still yet to come. So, So what then? There seem to be five possibilities. It could be a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead and or his ascension to the Father. The Apostle Paul, in the opening of his letter to the Romans, says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That sounds a bit like seeing the kingdom come with power. So maybe he's referring to the resurrection. Another possibility is that Jesus is referring to the first disciples receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. And they become Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A third possibility is that it refers to uh, witnessing the explosion of the church as it spreads across the known world during the lifetime of the apostles in the face of horrific persecution. A fourth possibility is that it refers to God destroying the temple in Jerusalem through the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 as judgment upon the Jewish nation as a whole for having refused to repent of their sin and refusing to receive their Messiah. Could be one of those four, but I think the fifth possibility is the most likely. Namely, that, that Jesus here in Mark chapter 9, verse 1 is referring to the event that took place six days later on the Mount of Transfiguration. Note that the time reference that that begins the next sentence, chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. This is the most precise chronological indicator in Mark's gospel thus far. And furthermore, having just spoken about the second coming in the previous verse, of these five possibilities, resurrection, Pentecost, the spread of the church, 70 A.D., of these five, I think the transfiguration is the clearest preview of the second coming. But what was it that Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain? What did it mean that Jesus was transfigured, that he was metamorphosed before them? Mark doesn't explain. Matthew explains a little bit further, saying, His face shone like the sun, 
And then his clothes became white as light. Matthew 16. So everything about him, from his face to his clothing, emanated pure light. What's going on here? It would seem that that for a moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted partially, revealing his deity, revealing the glory that he shared with the Father in eternity past, before he was born as a baby, before taking on human flesh. But not only is it a glimpse of his pre-existent glory, it seems to especially be a glimpse of the glory that he will display for all of eternity future upon his return, when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, as Luke puts it in Luke 9. It's an amazing display of his purity, his purity and his power and his authority. But why? Why did Jesus do this? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And there appeared to the disciples Elijah with Moses. And Elijah and Moses were talking with Jesus. What? Moses has been dead for over 1,400 years. It's been over 800 years since Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. But here they are, alive and talking with Jesus. Now, how Peter, James, and John knew it was Elijah and Moses who they'd never met, well, presumably it was evident by the conversation that they were having with Jesus. And and while Mark doesn't comment on what was said in that conversation, Luke Luke notes that Elijah and Moses and Jesus spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word there for departure is exodus. They were talking about his exodus. So here was Moses, the one who led God's people through the first exodus, conversing with Jesus about the new exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, namely his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, by which he delivered his people out of bondage to sin and death. For Jesus was the new Passover lamb who bore the penalty his people deserved in their place so that they may live his new exodus. The sacrifice of Jesus is what everything that came before was leading up to. Moses' presence represents the law that was given through him, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Elijah's presence represents the prophets, that is, the rest of the Old Testament. All of the law and the prophets, all of the Hebrew Bible pointed to and find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That's what is being testified to with the appearance of Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. But again, why? Why did this take place? And why at this moment? We're about to see. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Well, here's a word to the wise. If you don't know what to say, it's probably best not to say anything at all. Or you too may suddenly find yourself overshadowed by a terrifying cloud with a thundering voice from heaven correcting your thoughtless words, as Peter's about to experience. But what is Peter's misunderstanding? Well, for starters, addressing Jesus as rabbi, as the veil of his humanity is lifted and his divine glory shines forth, is a woefully inadequate degree of reverence. 
rabbi. He's so much more than that. And related to that, to speak of making three undifferentiated tents, one for each of these three holy men, seems to be placing Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Now, in Peter's mind, it may have been a supreme honor for his rabbi to be treated as an equal with the great Moses, with the great Elijah. But again, it was a woefully inadequate degree of honor. For Jesus is not just another prophet, or even the greatest of the prophets. He is something much greater. And there's something else implied by saying that it's good that we're here. Let us set up camp and stay here a while. When Jesus has just finished saying that he must go to Jerusalem to die. That all who follow him must likewise be willing to lose their lives for his sake. In response to Jesus' foretelling of his impending death, Peter, remember, had taken him aside to rebuke him. Peter now appeared to think that the kingdom had come in all its fullness, and there was no longer any need for all that cross business. And so, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The point of the transfiguration is to exhort us to listen and heed the word of the beloved Son. Accept that the path to glory is through suffering. This was the path for Jesus, and this is the path for all who desire to join Him in glory. It's the path of suffering. And while we may never face the degree of suffering that He had to experience, and that many there standing that day had to experience, We must still deny ourselves. We must take up our cross and we must follow Him. Does your life reflect an understanding of the cost of discipleship? Do you think of your time as belonging to you? Are you living as though this world is all that there is? For those who are empty nesters and who no longer need to to work for a living, do you view your current season of life as primarily being about you and your dreams? Was there a season of life when Jesus stopped denying himself and started living for himself? What about the first apostles, his first disciples? Now now certainly, Jesus demonstrated the need to make time to get away, to, to rest, to be alone with the Lord, away from the bustle of the life of service, but but never for more than a few days or a few weeks, certainly never for years on end. When the Lord opens doors for us to impact the lives of others, the only cost being some of our our free time, our me time, we need to, to be taken back to the top of this mountain, this new Sinai, that we may be exhorted by the voice of the Father to listen and heed the word of the beloved Son, commanding us to deny ourselves and follow Him. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man, that is Jesus, had risen from the dead. Why charge them to be silent? Because they still don't understand. Despite what they have seen and heard, they are still like the the partially blind, partially healed blind man in the previous chapter who could could see people, but it was as though they were, were trees walking around. 
But soon enough, these disciples too, like that man, would see everything clearly. And we're given an indication here of when that will be. When will the disciples finally see things clearly? Well, it's once Jesus, the Son of Man, has risen from the dead. But at this point in their journey with him, they still don't understand what that means. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves as he told them. They were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, it's not that they didn't understand what rising from the dead meant. These first disciples believed in a coming resurrection of the dead on the last day. We see that in the, in the testimony of Martha and Mary, for example, the sisters of Lazarus in John 11. They know that they will rise in the last day. So Peter, James, and John were right that it, it wouldn't make any sense to wait until then to tell others about what Jesus had done here on the mountain. But of course, that's, that's not what Jesus means. He has spoken plainly about the fact that he will rise two days after his death. Not on the last day, but two days after his death he will rise. But you see, their, their preconceived notions about what the Messiah would accomplish when he came and their preconceived notions about the resurrection of the dead prevent them from understanding his clear words. Their preconceived notions prevent them from understanding his words. They're also still confused about how the death of the Messiah could possibly contribute to the coming of the kingdom of God that they were anticipating. And they're confused about the timing of things. We read in verse 11. Hopefully you have your Bible open and we're going to work through this. Verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is, of course, a reference back to the closing verses of the Old Testament. The last few verses of Malachi. The only place in the Old Testament where Moses and Elijah are mentioned side by side. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, Peter, James, and John, they just saw Elijah on the mountain alongside Moses. But then both Moses and Elijah vanished. Elijah didn't do anything to prepare God's people to receive the Messiah. And besides that, Jesus' public ministry was, was well underway before this appearance of Elijah on the mountain. So how can it be said that Elijah must come first before the Messiah? That part of the question is legitimate, and Jesus will answer it. But, but notice the first part of the question they asked. Verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They should have asked, what does God's word mean at the end of Malachi? What did the Lord mean in speaking this prophecy through the prophet? Never mind the opinions of religious authorities who have rejected Jesus. What matters is what God has spoken. And here, Jesus, who alone is the supreme authority on the interpretation of the Word of God, grants understanding. Verse 12, And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. To restore all things. That is, to prepare the remnant of Israel, the believing Jews, to receive their Messiah. As Jesus is about to explain, the prophecy of the coming of Elijah was already fulfilled, not on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in the coming of John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah prior to Jesus' public ministry. So Elijah had come first before the Messiah. 
But before giving that explanation, Jesus asks a question of his own. He says this in verse 12 of his disciples. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Son of Man must suffer and be treated with contempt. Well, he's most likely primarily referring to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, but also to passages like Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes on the, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying that they should have understood from the word of God that the Messiah would have to die. And that understanding that the Messiah was going to die should have shaped their expectation about what the coming of the kingdom of God on earth would look like. They had not listened to the word of God. Verse 13, he says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. John the Baptist had come. He had been treated with contempt. Now, while the, de- while the death of the Messiah was explicitly foretold in several passages, Isaiah 52 and 53, Psalm 22 and elsewhere, and it was foreshadowed throughout all the Old Testament with all the sacrifices, where do we see it written that the new Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, would be rejected by the people to whom he was sent? That's what Jesus seems to be saying. Well, you, you could say that it's implied in foretelling that the Messiah would be rejected and be killed. It would be implied that the the forerunner would be killed as well. Or it could be implied in the way that the people of Israel rejected Moses, the way that the people of Israel rejected Elijah. As Jesus laments in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. As they had done with everybody before, of course they're going to do it to John the Baptist. But there's also the closing phrase of the Old Testament that the scribes and teachers of the law seem to ignore. Again, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, the last words of the Old Testament. Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, this was not a promise that the geopolitical nation of Israel would be restored and exalted to prominence, which they had wanted it to say. It was a warning of what would happen if they didn't repent, if their hearts weren't turned back to God by the new Elijah, John the Baptist. And instead of repenting at the preaching of John the Baptist, the new Elijah, the religious and the political authorities rejected him and beheaded him, thus foreshadowing the rejection and and crucifixion of Jesus. See, we must understand all of Scripture and all of life in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. This is what it took for us to be made right with God. God the Son had to suffer and die in our place. And thus, this understanding that God had to die so that I could live is the lens through which everything else is made clear. But because of their preconceived notions, they they weren't looking at the Word of God in that way. They weren't looking at Jesus in that way. And thus, they couldn't see who he was. But as we see the disciples doing here, we must seek the understanding of the beloved son. We must seek the insight that only he can give us into his word. Not picking and choosing which portions of the Bible we should believe. Not seeking out religious authorities, so-called experts who find ways to, to explain away the passages that we don't like anymore and only tell us what we want to hear. No, Jesus alone is the beloved son, 
Let us listen to him and seek his insight. Finally, we'll just briefly examine this last section beginning in verse 14, where Jesus comes down the mountain to encounter what? Controversy and chaos, unbelief in the valley. There's a message in that, isn't there? Between each spiritual mountaintop experience that we may have in our Christian life, there's a valley in which we must live. As one commentator put it, as wonderful and important as as mountaintop spiritual experiences are and can be, the disciples' primary occupation is in the valley of service. Verse 14, And when they came to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to to cast it out, and they were not able. Okay, so so that's the context of the argument that involves the scribes and the disciples and the crowd. But, But what exactly are the scribes taking issue with in their arguing? We're not told. We know that these scribes, these teachers of the law, these religious authorities are hostile toward Jesus. We've already seen that. We've seen that they've been telling people that Jesus' power to heal came from demons. So perhaps they're they're rebuking the crowds for seeking help from this man that was so repudiated by the religious and political authorities. Perhaps they're rebuking the disciples for trying to replicate the same miracles. Perhaps they're pointing to the failure of the disciples as evidence that their master is a fraud. Whatever the argument of the scribes is, Jesus, Jesus hears of this and he says this in verse 19. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Who is Jesus rebuking? It appears to be all of them. Everyone standing around who is either unwilling or unable to to save this tortured boy, but especially his own disciples. If your conception of Jesus does not permit him to rebuke his own followers for the lack of faith, let the true Jesus correct your understanding. The dominant emphasis throughout this episode, as with most of Jesus' healings, is faith. Skipping briefly to the end of the episode, the disciples will ask Jesus, Why could we not cast it out? Why could we not cast out this demon that we tried to? And Jesus explains that it was because they did not pray. Well, how had they been attempting to cast out the demon if not through prayer? Whose power had they been relying upon if not the power of God accessed through prayer? So Jesus says to them, bring him to me. Let us never fail to bring to Jesus in prayer those that we are seeking to help. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them in prayer. We must trust in the power of the beloved Son for every good endeavor, not in our own strength and abilities. Verse 20, And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, 
How long has this been happening to him? The father said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, the man would not have brought his suffering son to Jesus if he didn't believe that Jesus could heal him. But it appears that the the whole ordeal with the disciples' failure to cast out the demon and the scribes arguing with them has shaken this father's faith. But all it takes is for Jesus to call him back to faith. And he cries, in faith, I believe. Help my unbelief. Surely most of us have had moments in which our faith wavered. We needed to be be called to take our eyes off of whatever it was that was causing us to doubt and to fix them back on Jesus, crying out, I believe, help my unbelief, praying for faith in faith and experiencing the power of Jesus to answer that prayer, the prayer for faith offered in faith. Pray it now. Pray it daily. On this side of glory, we will never cease to need to pray this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took the boy up by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, regardless of whether the child had actually died, we're not told, regardless of that, Mark is deliberately choosing the language of resurrection for a reason. Back in verse 10, at the top of the mountain, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, had questioned how Jesus could rise from the dead before the last day thus doubting his words that he would do so. But here in the valley, here in the valley, they witness a foretaste of his resurrection power, thus confirming the trustworthiness of his word. Verse 28, And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's only through acknowledging in expressing our weakness, that God's power will be shown. And we acknowledge and express our weakness through prayer. In Luke's account of the transfiguration, he notes that it was actually for the purpose of prayer that Jesus had had taken Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain with him. Prayer is as essential to the life of the disciple as faith. Where there is faith, there will be prayer. Where there is no prayer, there is no faith. And where there is no faith, there is no spiritual power, whether for an individual or for a church. So again, I encourage you, join us this evening for the one time each week that we gather together for an extended time of prayer, seeking God's power. Well, having seen the beloved Son publicly portrayed as crucified, raised, and glorified this morning in this text, May we listen to his word, seek his insight, 
and trust in his power. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who opens and enlightens the eyes of our hearts that we may see and believe. Help us to listen and to heed all that you have spoken. Help us to seek the understanding that only you can grant us. And help us to trust in your power for every good endeavor, not in ourselves. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <laughs>